and do in our lives as a result of our suffering. And so we want to continue that again uh, today. And, and what I want to do before I get there is I, I was thinking about this last night, and I just I, I, I want to try to strike the balance of, 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 of obviously preaching God's Word so we can see the, the reality of our suffering. And the reality of our suffering is painful, right? If those of you that have suffered and, and gone through hard times in your lives, it, it, it's painful, it's hard. But I also want to remind us that even in the midst of that, although we know that God is, is working on our behalf, I want us to also know that, that when we're going through hard things, it is an expression of God's love for us. That, 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 that it doesn't always feel that way, but we are being mightily loved by God. And I want us to make sure that when we suffer, we know that even that suffering won't separate us from that love. In fact, it should draw us closer to the sense of that love. So I want to do something really fast. And this is by way of reminder. I know you guys know these truths, but before we get to the last five words of what we started on uh, last uh, yesterday, I want to just... Spend a little time in Romans chapter 8. So open your Bibles back there. I know we've been there uh, a number of different times, but I just want to remind us, I was just really uh, impressed uh, about this text last night as I was thinking about what we wanted to say this morning. Uh, you all know that this is a glorious book where Paul just unfolds the glories of the gospel uh, from soup to nuts, as it were, as Paul uh, sets out to uh, teach those uh, Christians in Rome, the gospel of God. And when he comes to Romans chapter 8, in some senses, this is the climactic uh, end to the theological truths that he's been articulating about justification and about sanctification, positional sanctification, practical sanctification. And he comes to uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and he says this, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I just want to point that out, and we'll look further on in, in, in verses 8, 28 and following. But you need to understand that if you are in Christ, brothers and sisters and friends, there is no condemnation for you. Jesus Christ has taken all of the condemnation that your sins deserve. And, and I'm pointing that out because the tendency can be sometimes that when we suffer, we think we're being judged and condemned. We think it is because of our sins and somehow or another that it's God's wrath or it's God's anger being poured out onto us. And that's an incorrect theological way to think about suffering for the believer. For the non-believer, that's different. But for the believer, you must understand and you must put your feet firmly in the soil of the reality that Jesus Christ on the cross took all of the punishment that all of your sins deserve. There is no punishment, no condemnation, no judgment left for you. Let the church say amen. That's good news. So whatever you're going through, whatever you have gone through, whatever you will go through, it is not because God is mad at you. It is not because God is judging you for your sins. It is not because God is pouring out his wrath because you did a bad thing or you did a series of bad things. Jesus Christ on the cross took all of that for you. All of the pain and all of the suffering, the, 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 the judicial pain and suffering, the wrath of God, the anger of God. That's been taken away. And so when we suffer, it's not as a result of God's anger for us. When we suffer, it's out of God's love for us. And all of the things that we've been talking about that he means to accomplish in our lives. So the tendency is to, is to look at God and to shrink back from God as though he's angry at us. 
And if we understand our theology well, it should be just the opposite. Our suffering shouldn't cause us to run away from God. It should cause us to run to God. It's like a child when you know, parents here, and, and, and I love the fact that you guys have so many children here. That's just wonderful. Uh, it, when a child hurts himself or hurts herself and they're in pain, they run to their father and they run to their mother, don't they? Right? Because they know that there's comfort there, there's counsel there, there's warmth there, there's care there, right? They shouldn't run away from a parent. And it's the same thing in our lives when we suffer and God sends pain into our life. God intends for us not to run away from him, but to run to him, into his loving arms. And, and Paul unfolds that in so many words as he, as he unfolds in Romans uh, 8. And, and so just drift down to me a little, with me a little bit to verse uh, 16. When Paul begins to talk about suffering, he introduces suffering in the context of Romans chapter 8. He says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, we're heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed, notice this, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And again, he just wants the believers to understand, even though we have all of these spiritual privileges, that we are in fact children of God, we also must be aware of the reality that we will suffer with Christ. Being united and having communion and union with Christ, we will also then suffer with Christ. Christ's life was characterized by suffering, and so too our lives will be characterized by suffering. My son Timothy, in his observant way, noticed, and I don't know how many of you guys noticed it, if you looked at your brochure, there is a, uh, a wreath of thorns there, right? But underneath there, there is a reflection of a, who wants to tell me? You guys are looking at it now, right? <laughs> of a crown, right? Somebody designed that, and they designed that intentionally, because the, the wreath of suffering and thorns comes before the crown. That's the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He suffered first and then he gained the crown. And it is the same thing for us. We suffer first and then we get the crown in our glorification. And we are not yet glorified now. Therefore, that means then that there is still yet suffering for us to endure as we are headed to glorification. And we will receive crowns like the Lord Jesus Christ did. But for now, it is a life of thorns. And Paul says that then, that we will suffer with Christ but as Paul unfolds it and he goes on, let me just read these texts for us. For Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Suffering comes first, then glory. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And again, it's saying that um, suffering comes first, glory comes second. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. There's something in us that is groaning because we live in this fallen and broken world and we suffer and we are 
waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And that's all to say this, that Paul wants us to understand that there is an aching, there is a groaning in our souls. We feel it every day, waiting for the adoption as sons and daughters. That is the full realization of the glory that God has in store for all of us at the consummation. But as Paul goes on, he wants us to know that even though we groan and even though we suffer, even though there's pain in our lives, that we must understand that it's not because God is angry at us, but in fact, God is for us. Drop down to verse 31. This is really the climax of what Paul has been saying all the way from chapter 1. He wants to sum it up by saying this, what then shall we say to these things? In other words, what's the response, the right response of the Christian to everything that Paul's been saying, particularly as he comes to this section of suffering? What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And I want you just to underline that in your Bibles if you don't have that underlined, that God is for you. God is for us. Even when we're suffering, because when we're suffering, the tendency is to think that God is what? Against us. Right. If somebody's inflicting pain to us, you don't think that they're for us. You think that they're against us. And Paul wants you to understand, no, no, that's not the case. God is absolutely for us. And if he is for us, the question then is, who can be against us? Now, many people can be against us. Right. But the idea that nobody can be against us in any kind of meaningful and impactful way. Nobody can thwart what God is doing for us because God is on our side. God is on our side. How do we know that God is on our side? Well, we know that God is on our side because of what he did to his son for us. Look at your Bibles in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. And the all are those for whom are being conformed into the image of his son. These are the ones who have been chosen by God, who love God, and who are called according to his purpose. The son was given for us all, and if that is the case, how will he that is God not also with him freely give us all things? So if God has given us the son, which is the greatest gift ever, how will he not give us everything else that we need in order to reach our end Destiny, which is to be conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then this is really why I open this up, because I want you to see this. Paul then goes on to say that as we live out our lives, that nobody can can lodge a, a charge against us. That's verse 33. Who then will be able to bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And then these monumental verses mark them down. And I'm not going to try to expand on them. I just want you to hear them. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? That's what I want you to be anchored in this morning. The reminder that nothing that you will endure will ever separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Because God has so designed salvation that you are secure in his love no matter what he sends into your life. Notice how Paul continues. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril 
or, or sword. That's suffering, right? He's not saying that you won't go through that. He is actually saying the opposite, that you will go through that. But it won't separate you from God's love. Just as it is written, he says this, and he quotes from the Old Testament out of Psalm 44. For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's what we look like sometimes through the world, like sheep being slaughtered because of the suffering that comes into our lives, the suffering through tribulation, through distress, through persecution, through famine, through nakedness, through peril, through sword. But Paul's resolve is this. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We are conquerors through our suffering because of the love of God in Christ Jesus. Don't see yourself as a victim in your pain. See yourself as being triumphantly conquering because God is doing something in your life and he is loving you as he's doing what he's doing in your life. And so Paul says this, I am convinced, and I hope all of you are as well, that you would be convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And let everybody say, amen. Now, I just wanted to do that this morning just to remind you that you are anchored in the love of God. Whatever it is that you're going through, to know that God loves you and he loves you with an everlasting love and he will not let you go. He will hold you fast in the midst of your pain. He will draw near to you with grace and mercy and compassion. But you have to know this. It's been 15 years now and uh, we were pregnant at the time with number four. And everything was going normal um, with our pregnancy. We were pros. We had already delivered three. We, she had already <laughs> <laughs> delivered three. And everything was going normal. And uh, we were at the point with this pregnancy where she was checking in with her uh, OB uh, on a weekly basis. And so she was on one of those um, weekly checkups. I went with her <clears throat> and we went to the OB doctor and uh, the doctor was doing the ultrasound and uh, you, you know something is going wrong when the, the doctor on the ultrasound turns the screen away uh, from mom and dad. <clears throat> and uh, this doctor did, um, but she didn't give us what her concern was. She just said, hmm. Um, and it wasn't a, a good whom. It was a concerning whom. And she just told us that I want you guys to go to the hospital right away. Now, that's not good news, right, when you still have about another month um, of uh, pregnancy to go. And we thought, okay, because my wife tends to lose amniotic fluid uh, when she's about to deliver, so we just thought it was that. We didn't ask a lot of questions. We just said, okay, we'll go right to the hospital. And so we did. We went to the hospital, and we went to a perinatologist, um, neonatologist, and uh they had a souped-up Jumbotron um, ultrasound machine. This thing was huge, you guys. And um, I hooked my wife up, and uh, he did the exact same thing uh, that the other um, ultrasoundists did, and he turned the screen away. But by this time, we're deeply concerned. 
And the rest after this is a blur in my mind. Quite frankly, I remember words like uh, stillbirth, uh, water around the heart, um, Down syndrome, um, and emergency C-section. And I looked at my wife, she looked at me, and this caught us totally off by guard. Um, we did not know what to do. We didn't know what was going on. Now I remember running down to the car to grab her bag, and then it just hit me like a ton of bricks that something was wrong with my sweet little daughter. And I called one of our elders to have him pray and to alert the church to pray. And I remember I just broke down. I just, like a baby. And I just cried and I thought to myself, what in the world is going on? So I made it back up to stairs and by that time they had already prepped my wife for emergency C-section and they were willing to into the room. They allowed me to go into the room with her. And within 15 to 20 minutes, little baby Julia, whom you guys have been praying for, uh, was born. And uh, she was born just over two pounds, less than three pounds. And she was so small, I could literally hold her in my hand, and she went from about here to here. She's completely proportional. All of her body functions were working, and they rushed her into uh, the NICU. Uh, she was able to rub her mom's cheek, and she went off into the NICU. I kissed my wife and went out to the NICU uh, with her. And that began our challenging life with our baby girl, Julia. I share that story with you not to try to pull on your emotional strings, but I share that with you to say that at those moments, that if you don't have a rock-solid theology of the sovereignty of God and suffering, you will unfold. And I like to tell you, you guys, that I was like, yes, praise the Lord. I wasn't because it was painful to see my wife go through what she was going through. It was painful to see my little daughter come into the world the way that she came through. It was painful for me to think about, you know, what her medical difficulties might be and all of those kinds of things. But God was very gracious in undergirding us with his love and with his care and with his compassion. Her life has been very, very hard, but we have been blessed beyond measure because God loves us even in the midst of that suffering. Some of you have walked that road. Some of you guys will walk that road. It may not be with a child. It may be with a caring for a parent, caring for a spouse, something like that. And again, brothers and sisters, I share these stories with you just to remind us that these are real issues that believers face on a regular basis. And we must be rooted and grounded in our theology of a sovereign God who loves us, who designs these things in our lives to make us and conform us more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now with that said, and just thinking about God's love for us, even as pain comes into our life, we want to finish the last five words that we started on yesterday. We looked at humility, dependency, sympathy, authenticity, and piety. And so this is number six, and so you guys could write this down. This one kind of bleeds over to and kind of overlaps with the last one, piety, but I'm calling this maturity, maturity. And for this, I want you guys just to open up to James chapter one, to James chapter one, a familiar text to us. I think all of us know it pretty well, where James is writing to believers. Chapter one, it says, James, this is the brother of our Lord. 
the bond servant, he writes, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. And then we find these wonderful words in verses two through uh, four. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That word there can be sometimes translated temptations, depending upon the context. It's one word. The same word in Greek can be translated temptation and or trials. Again, depending upon the context. In this context, it would be better to understand it, not when you fall into various trial uh, temptations, but various trials, variegated kinds of trials, different kinds of trials. In other words, it's not just one simple trial, but there's all kind of trials that God designs for us, different uh, shapes and sizes and colors and contours of trials that God designs for us. And, And James says we are to consider it all joy when we encounter those various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then verse four says, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be here. It is perfect. This idea of whole and mature and complete. And the the negative way to look at it is lacking in nothing. In other words, count it all joy when you encounter these trials, when you encounter suffering, knowing that God is at work in your life to make you whole, to make you complete, to make you mature because there is something lacking in your life that God wants to add into your life. And the means by which he's going to do this is by sending suffering. That's the idea that he starts off. James does his whole um, letter uh, rooting them in the reality that God is at work in the lives of believers, maturing us, growing us up so that we might be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way that he does that is by bringing us in through pain. That's an amazing thing to think about. Look down in verse 12, where he kind of summarizes a little bit, and he says this, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once you have been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So happy is the one who perseveres under trial because there is a reward waiting for us. And again, that's the idea that the thorn comes first and then the crown of glory. So we ask ourselves, what is God doing in our lives when he brings pain? He's maturing us. He's growing us up. He's adding things into our lives that would not otherwise be added to our lives that we need to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And And there's a process here that I want to set before us that we need to know so we can count it all joy. We can endure and let endurance have its perfect work in our lives. So let me just give you three things to think about uh, as we look at this under the heading of maturity, that that if we're going to grow and God's going to produce this kind of maturity in our lives, the first thing that James tells us is that we need to have a joyous attitude, right? He says, consider it all what? Joy. Consider all of it joy. All of the pain that that, that you're encountering at that moment, consider it all joy. Now, he's not talking about giddiness or silliness, but he's talking about uh, thinking and understanding that, that, that this is a cause for rejoicing in the sense of what God is doing, right? Because pain, as we talked about before, pain doesn't feel good to any of us. But you are to consider it with an attitude of joy because of what you know. And that's the second thing. So you need to have a joyous attitude and an understanding mind. Right. And this is actually a sign of maturity. This is how we get there. 
Now look at verse 3. When it says, consider it all joy, how do we consider it all joy? He tucks under this little part of it, but knowing. The joy comes from knowing something, which means that if you're ignorant of what God is doing in your life, you won't be able to count it all joy. You will be miserable through all of your suffering if you don't know this. And that's why we're spending time talking about it so you can know it when the pain comes. You won't be left ignorant and you won't be miserable, but you can count it all joy even in the midst of suffering. And what is it that you are to know? You are to know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and all of us want endurance. Another way to think about it is, is steadfastness. That we are growing, we are being expanded in our godliness and in our righteousness. We are maturing and being more like Christ in thought and in word and in deed. And we have to know that. So it's a joyous attitude. It's an understanding mind. And then thirdly, it's a submissive will. You have to have all three of those things. Joyous attitude, count it all joy. An understanding mind, knowing, and then a submissive will. And that's verse four, and let. He says, and let endurance have its perfect work. And what he's simply saying there is, you guys, is that when suffering comes to your mind, don't bulk against it. Don't fight against it, right? Don't, 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 don't wage warfare on God for doing what he's doing in your life. It doesn't mean that if you, you're sick, you can't go to the doctor, It doesn't mean that if there's a difficult financial uh, situation in your life, you can't try to find a solution. But what it means is at the end of the day, this is what we are called to say, Lord, not my will, but what? Thy will be done. Right. Is that not how the Lord Jesus Christ prayed? Right. He actually asked his father that if if there was another way, let this cup do what? Pass from me. So he was he prayed that. But he said this at the end of his prayer, but not my will, thy will be done. That's what James is referring to. At the end of the day, in the same way that the Apostle Paul prayed three times that the Lord would take away his thorn in the flesh, but he realized that the Lord wouldn't take it away. And so he said what? He understood that God's grace would be sufficient for him. And so he rejoiced in his weaknesses. He rejoiced in his pain. We are to be submitted to the sovereign will of God in our lives. And if we do that, God will grow us up in amazing ways, ways that we can't mature ourselves. Back in Hebrews, and you guys don't have to turn there, Hebrews chapter 2, we have another one of those profound statements about the Lord Jesus Christ and how God used suffering in his life. We found these words in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, for it was fitting for him, that is God the Father, for, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. That word perfect there in verse 10 is the same word that James uses to say that that's what God is doing in our lives, making us complete. So even the son of God was matured through the things that he suffered. How much more us should desire to be matured through the things that we suffer? Listen, there are certain things in our lives, loved ones, that are so calcified, that are so solidified, and and they're rooted in our lives that only suffering can bring them out of our lives. Only suffering can unlodge them from our souls. 
And God is wanting to do that and will do that in our lives. So maturity. Number seven. Mark this down. I'm calling this opportunity. Opportunity. So maturity is number six. Number seven is opportunity. Now, this isn't so much a subjective effect of suffering, but it's just as important during the process of producing Christian character in our lives that God designed suffering to open up doors for opportunity in our lives. And for that, I want you guys to meet me in Philippians. Philippians chapter one. As you will oftentimes find yourself in a place that you would otherwise never go talking to people that you would otherwise never meet had it not been for the suffering that God has brought into your life. Paul gives testimony to that in the first chapter of the letter to to the Philippians. I want you to see this and I'll, I'll press this home to us. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, now I want you to know, brethren, notice this, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment, and stop right there, right? The circumstances that Paul finds himself in right now is that he is in prison. He has lost his freedom. He has suffered for the gospel's sake, and he has been brought into prison. And he is writing to the Philippians because they're deeply concerned about him. And he's saying that, listen, I appreciate your concern, but things aren't as bad as you think they are. Yes, I'm suffering. Yes, I'm in prison. Yes, I've lost my freedom. But God is actually doing something in my life through my pain right now. And what is God doing? What was God doing there? Notice it has turned out his suffering, his difficult circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that verse 13, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorium guard and to everyone else. Stop right there. You see what Paul is saying? Paul is saying that, listen, I'm in prison, but the gospel isn't in prison. That God has taken me to a place that I would otherwise not have been able to go for the gospel's sake. Now, there are actually people that are getting saved in Caesar's household the imperial praetorium guard. There are individuals, right, who worked for Caesar that were chained up with Paul. And you guys know this, that, that, that they would be chained up the apostle Paul for 12-hour shifts. And what do you think Paul was talking to those guys about in those 12 hours? He wasn't talking about the Dodgers, you guys. And I know that's an anachronism, but you guys get the point, right? He was talking about Jesus. He was talking about the glory of God. He was witnessing to them, right? In other words, that, that what, what, what God does with his people very oftentimes is he, he brings suffering to, to our lives to get us to move out of our comfort zone and to go to spaces with people in places that we would otherwise not get there for the cause of the gospel. When you guys read the book of Acts, you guys remember that, that, that God, Christ, before he went back to heaven, told them that you will be my witnesses, right? Right? In Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the other parts of the world. But did they go? What's the answer to that, you guys? Not immediately. And do you know what God sent in their lives to spread them out? Persecution. Right? 
through Saul, who we know as Paul in chapter 8. Saul begins to just wreak havoc amongst the believers there in Jerusalem, putting them into prison. And the text says that they spread out. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem and the believers spread out. And as they spread out, they were witnessing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he does with his people. He gives us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity because we go to places and in spaces that we would not otherwise go. And I keep using my daughter as an example, and that's okay because I asked her permission. Can I use you as an example? She said, yes. So I do that. I cannot tell you how many nurses and how many doctors, how many phlebotomists and folks in hospitals that we have had the opportunity to witness to as a result of my daughter's suffering. It's been amazing, absolutely amazing. How many individuals have, have, have seen the love of Jesus Christ when my precious daughter has been in the hospital and the saints from our church have come to bring us food and come to pray with us and come to sing hymns while she's in the hospital and the nurses and the nurses station come by. It's like, man, what is going on here? And we just tell them about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we mean. I call suffering God's Trojan horse for the gospel. Right? Everybody knows the story of the Trojan horse, right? You say, here's a gift, right, that, that, that hides the army of gospel ministers in it, right? And so some of us will be in hospitals and, and some of us will be in other kind of settings and we would not otherwise have been there had it not been for the pain that God has caused in our life and God is using you for that to proclaim the sweetness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in those places. God will open up profound doors for us as he did with the Apostle Paul. Marvelous opportunities for us to bear witness to the goodness and the kindness of God. Now, I want to tuck in here because one thing came to my mind on opportunity. So put a slash there and I'm going to add one more word there. I'm going to add glory. Okay. I'm making this up as I go, you guys, because it's just coming to my mind. But I, I, <laughs> I think this is really important. So it's opportunity slash glory. We could do glory all on its own. It could be number 11. But I'm putting it under the same kind of category because in, in, in opportunities for the gospel, there's also opportunities for people to witness the glory of God in and through our lives, through our suffering. And I have a particular passage in my mind that's a tough passage, but a glorious passage. And it's found in John's gospel John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples are are, are walking, and they they pass by an individual. And it says there in verse 1, this is John chapter 9, as he passed by, he, Jesus, he has his disciples with him, saw a man born blind, or a man blind from birth. Now, notice the perspective here. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now, there was a prevailing theology at the time that all suffering was caused by personal sin. And some people even today have that same kind of thought. That if you're suffering, is there pain in your life? If there's disability in your life, if there's disease in your life, if there's hardship in your life, it's because somebody sinned. That was their their theology. That's what they thought. That sin always equals suffering. 
But notice Jesus's answer. Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. Now, pause right there. He is not saying this man or his parents are not sinners. But he is saying that what happened to this man being born blind had nothing directly to do with this person's sin or their parents' sin. Right? It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was, notice this, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, this is one of those texts that you just got to take a cup of coffee, sit on the desk and sit down and sit back and think about. You guys see what Jesus is saying? That this individual was born blind by the design of God because God intended to put his glory on display in his life. If that's not the sovereignty of God over suffering, I don't know what is. And God can actually do that. Now that causes us to rock back on our, in our heels a little bit and say, how could God do something like that? Well, he's God. And God did, in fact, put his glory on display because you know what Jesus did? Jesus healed this man who was born blind and that had never, ever, ever been done before. No one had ever healed a blind man or a blind person that was born blind. And God put his glory on display in this individual's life. And this individual lived all of these years blind and suffering as a beggar so that God might display his glory in his life. And again, loved ones, that's what it means to be sovereign. That you get to do whatever you want to do to whomever you want to do it for your own purposes, for however long you want to do it. And that's what God will do in our lives as well. He will afflict us. He will cause us pain because he wants to put his glory on display in our lives. And sometimes that glory just simply looks like this, that we are trusting him through the pain. And people are amazed that we can trust a God who doesn't remove the pain from our lives. And they will become curious about that God that we have trust in. That's what Peter meant, you guys, when he says, always be ready to give it a defense for the hope that lies within you. Always be willing to give an, an apology. An apology isn't, you know, saying I'm sorry, but it's a defense. And it's in the context. I know we use that verse oftentimes for apologetics. That's technically not the context of that verse. The context of that verse is this, that you guys are suffering and the world is watching you suffering. So always be ready to give a defense as to why you are clinging to a savior who allows you to suffer. And God uses that as an opportunity for his own glory as, as the world looks at our faith when God is pulling the rug out from under our feet. And God uses that to expand the cause of the gospel in our lives. So opportunity and glory. And that's why God causes pain in our lives. Number eight. Number eight. I'm calling this capacity. Capacity. Let's look at 2 Corinthians together. One of the things that God does in our lives as we suffer is expand our capacity for what awaits us in heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes this. He says in verse 16, 
Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Uh, I want you to notice verse 17 and 18 particularly. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And I want you to focus on verse 7 and what he's saying. Verse 17, for momentary light affliction. He's talking about suffering. And he says the momentary light affliction is actually producing something in their lives. And he says it's producing for us an eternal weight of glory. In other words, Paul's point is this, that God is at work in their lives through suffering, expanding their capacity to actually enjoy heaven. Now, I don't understand how all of that works, but that's what the text says, that there is somehow this correlation of our enjoyment of the glories and the rewards of heaven and and what we suffer here for the cause of Christ on earth. That's a, a staggering understanding and perspective. And I want you to put these things together. So if you can maybe put two columns together, one under the other, think about momentary light affliction. And then Paul writes eternal. So you got to put eternal underneath momentary, right? You guys get that? So something is momentary and then something's eternal. And then put light and then put weight and then put affliction and then put underneath that glory. Does that make sense in your brains? He has those two two things there, right? And you won't see your suffering as momentary in light until you understand that God is doing something in your life that's going to be eternal and weighty. And your affliction will only be affliction unless you understand that your affliction is leading to glory. That's what Paul is saying. Momentary light affliction will yield itself to the weightiness of eternal glory. And that's part by God's design in our lives. And again, brothers and sisters, I don't know how all that works out, but that's exactly what Paul is saying. That the ease and the comfort that we're so used to, we shouldn't be so used to, that we should be open to the pain that God brings into our lives to expand our capacity to enjoy God and to appreciate glory when we get there. And that will last forever and ever and ever and ever. It's an amazing perspective to have. Maybe it has something to do with rewards. I'm not sure. But I know this, that we can't always see the suffering in our lives as doing it, but it is. God is at work, even though you might not feel it. And we have to trust him. So maturity, opportunity slash glory, capacity. We have two more, then we'll be done. Number nine is eternity. Is eternity. We'll go back to Philippians. You guys can kind of see where we're going here. Eternity. One of the things that God does with our suffering is simply just to make us yearn for heaven more. Right? I see some of you guys shaking your head, and it's interesting that it's the older saints that are shaking their head. <laughs> right? 
you young people are like, no, I want to live. And that is good. We want you to live long lives too, right? But for some of us that have been walking with the Lord for a good deal of time, for some of the gray hairs around you, right? We've lived and we've suffered and we're longing for heaven, right? This is a precious truth for us. We realize that this world is not getting better, right? That doesn't mean that we don't pray and work to make it better, but we realize that it is broken and it is falling. And the pain of it and the suffering that we endure makes us long for heaven all the more, that we sing more with more passion Maranatha than we did when we were 16, right? Come Lord Jesus. Our prayers begin to change a little bit as we get older and we're crying out for Jesus to come back. We long for heaven and Paul in his suffering and in his pain, it's interesting that he says he, he found himself in a situation, this is Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 to, uh, to 23, He said, but for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Uh, I do not know which to choose, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. And I think Paul's perspective there is that the more that he suffered, the more he desired to leave this world and be with the Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted to be with his Savior. And I think that's a part of what God does. It's so easy, you guys, to to accumulate stuff, to amass things, to put our tent pegs so deep into this world that we think that this is all that there is. To begin to to live in, in some senses in the temporal plane as though eternity doesn't exist. When was the last time, and maybe I shouldn't ask this crowd because I don't want to put your pastors on, on blast here. When is the last time you heard a wonderful sermon about heaven? It's not a rhetorical question. When was the last time you guys heard a sermon on heaven? Right? <laughs> right? And I know in our circles we talk about that. But in a lot of places, you guys, they just don't talk about heaven. It's all about me, and it's all about now, and it's all about my best life, right? Joel thing, you live your best life now. If this is our best life, you guys, forget about it, right? Really? This is our best life now? Please. Thank the Lord for life now and all of the blessings. But brothers and sisters and friends, this is not our best life. And God reminds us of that through the pain that he sends to us. He gives us just enough to keep looking up, to keep the expectation of something better and something more glorious in our lives. To just sever the ties that we have with this life. It just, it's a remarkable kind of thing. I, I think I mentioned this at our first session. I think, I think COVID-19 did that for us, right? It pulled the, the, the blanket off of the thin veneer of just being comfortable in this world. And it reminded us, right, that this world is passing by. And there's a virus out there that can actually kill you, right? There's pain and suffering all over the world. Right. And how many people scurry from pillar to post and just are absolutely terrified of death? And I'm not saying that you have to run and lick a pole, you guys. I'm not saying that. Right. I'm not saying that you don't have to wear a mask or you shouldn't be concerned. I'm not saying any of those kind of things. But the world is terrified of dying. But for the Christian. 
because of the work of Christ, we do not have to fear death. That if God would so choose to use COVID-19 in our lives to bring us to glory, he is still yet good. And he has used COVID-19 to bring some of his people unto himself. And the pain that we feel and we encounter is to remind us that this world is not our home. There is so much more. And we could say, as the Apostle Paul says, for me to live is Christ. We live out our lives for Christ as long as he wants us here. But to die is gain. Because we shed off this mortality to put on immortality and to be with our Savior forever and ever and ever and ever. So maturity, opportunity, capacity, eternity. And then the last one is Calvary. I couldn't think of a better word than that. But Calvary, and what I mean by this, and we can stay in the book of Philippians, and with this we'll draw our time to a close. Philippians chapter 3, when Paul just recounts, in some senses, his testimony, speaking over against the Judaizers of his day, one of the things that becomes crystal clear in Paul's um, testimony is that the greatest desire and passion that he had was to know Christ and be in intimate fellowship with him. Let me just read a few of these verses. I'm going to start in verse 8. I'll read down to verse 11. Notice what Paul says. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have noticed has suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Notice this verse 10. This is what I want to press home to us. That I may know him. That was Paul's greatest desire. He wanted to know Jesus Christ. And please understand, loved ones, that he already knew Jesus Christ when he was writing this, right? He he knew Jesus Christ. He met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. But he's saying, I want to grow deeper in in intimacy, in union and communion with Jesus Christ. That was his greatest passion. When when, when Paul woke up in the morning, he said, hey, Paul, what do you want to do today? I want to just learn more about Christ. I want to grow in intimacy in my walk with Jesus Christ. That was his greatest passion. That I might know him, and he knew there was a process to that, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. He knew that in union and communion with Jesus Christ, that he would have to experience the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And his point is simply this, that we grow closer and closer and closer to Jesus Christ, particularly through hard times. How many for you you guys have that's been the case? And it's not to suggest that when things are going well, we don't have union and communion with Christ. It is true. But it's when we're pressed down, we tend to grow closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. We tend to to experience more of his grace and more of his glory and more of his kindness and more of his compassion and more of the sense of his presence when we suffer. That's the idea. That we grow in all of the things that Christ achieved for us on Calvary's cross. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You guys know the three Hebrew boys, right? 
And, and it is amazing that they had known Yahweh, but when was Yahweh most close to them? You tell me. When they were where? In the fiery furnace, right? That, that's what that text is telling us. It, it's showing us that when they were in the midst of the fire, who showed up with them? Right? One who looked like the Son of Man. Right? When Daniel, who knew the Lord, but when did the Lord show up for Daniel? When he was in the lion's den, right? That the Lord showed up with him and shut the mouth of the lion. I think those are illustrations to teach us that it is in the darkest hour, it is in those moments of our, our deepest pain and heartache and affliction when the Lord draws near to us in his Calvary grace and in his Calvary mercy. And that is meant to be an encouragement of all of us and to all of us that God is doing all of these things, loved ones. So I hope that this has been helpful. Um, as I said before on yesterday, we don't know always what God is doing, but I think these 10 words give us a sense of some of the things that he does in our lives. The Heidelberg Catechism, some of you guys are aware of it, some of you guys may use it. I would commend it to you in the raising of your kids to catechize them. But question number one in the catechism is this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Right? What is our comfort in life and death? What is our comfort when we suffer? What is our comfort when we face death? And the answer to the question is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, the only comfort that we ultimately have is that we belong to a sovereign God who has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins so that no matter what happens in our life and when we face death, we can have comfort and confidence that he loves us and that he will take care of us. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you. You are wonderful, and we love you. Seal these truths to our hearts that we might trust you even in our affliction. We commit this time to you. Commit our minds and our hearts and our wills to you. Bend them toward you, that we would worship you as we walk in obedience, submissive to your sovereignty over our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.